It is um, John 16 that we'll be looking at this morning. Not going to cover very many verses. We're going to be looking at Lesson 158B, the Ministries of the Holy Spirit. Or is it B? Yeah, B. Part B. And today we're going to talk about the, the Holy Spirit's teaching ministry. We've talked about his comforting ministry and his reproving ministry. And today our focus is going to be on the Spirit's teaching ministry. So when you're opened up to John 16 and you've got your books open, then we can go ahead and ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. All right, would you bow with me? Father, we quiet ourselves before you this morning knowing our great need. And so we ask for great grace. We ask that you would shed abroad in this place here this morning the wonder of your love and the genuine thankfulness for the, the many, many mercies promised to us in the Scripture. Father, may we enjoy a sense of fellowship with you here this morning through the shed blood and the intercessory work of your Son, and we thank you for him. You have told us that underneath us are your everlasting arms and that nothing touches us that does not touch you, that we are as the apple of, of the eye to you. So may we find ourselves enabled by your Spirit to turn to you as our rock, our mighty fortress, our high place, and as our Redeemer of all sin. We pray for any who may be sitting here today alienated from you and their spirits perhaps anxious or unsettled. Draw them to yourself. May your spirit have his way of, of seeing their need and meeting it. And may the Lord Jesus particularly, O oh Lord, we ask that he would be lifted up today so that our eyes will be full of him. May we look full on his wonderful face. Turn us away from all earthly things, the things that attach themselves to us, that draw us down. Lord, may we be caused today to rise and to, to shake off our, our guilty fears living in this world thank you for that one who sits at your right hand whose body yet bears the wounds of our redemption the one who pleads for us as our intercessor help us to draw nigh to you this morning as we consider your holy word to us and we will bless you for what is accomplished this morning for we know that these prayers are made in accordance to your will we pray in jesus name amen the Holy Spirit's coming would have a magnified influence on the entire world. He would not only come to permanently indwell and perfect and comfort believers, but what else would he do? He would work to convince and to convict the world, the whole world, about their sin of rejecting the one and only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And also he would come to convict and convince the world about the absolute righteousness of who? Of the Lord Jesus Christ, which was proven by his father's acceptance of him uh, when he went into heaven to sit at his right hand. 
and the Father's exaltation of, of him. That's when his righteousness was proven. And who had to come and tell the world that the Father accepted him and that he was entirely righteous? The Spirit. The Spirit was the witness of that. And the Spirit would come also to reprove the world of what? To convince and convict the world of one more thing. Not only sin, the sin of rejecting Christ, and of um, righteousness, Christ's righteousness. But what was the third thing the Spirit would come to do? Right. Convict the world of judgment. He could do that in a way never before possible because of the judgment of Satan at the cross and at the, re- the, the tomb, the resurrection. So the Holy Spirit would entirely counter and change the whole drift of human viewpoint on those three subjects, sin, righteousness, and judgment. Much of what we enjoy today is due to the fact that the Spirit of God is at work, not just individually, not just with one nation, Israel, but he's at work how? Universally. And there is something more than conscience and more than law to persuade men of the truth of God's word. Now, that's what we discussed last time in John 16, verses 8 to 11. The verses we come to today, which are verses 12 to 15, deal with the influence of the Spirit on believers in the matter of teaching or guidance. The Holy Spirit has a teaching, guiding ministry with the whole world? No, with with believers. Who does he comfort? Believers. Who does he reprove? The world. Who does he teach and guide? Believers. Okay, you got it. Now, in explaining to the disciples the coming teaching ministry of, of the Spirit, first to them, you know, first of all, he would guide and teach the apostles, and then through them, he would teach and guide all those who make up the body of the church. In speaking of that, the Lord spoke of a revealing process progressive revelation. He said, look at verse 13. He said, I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. How be it when he, who is he? The spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit is come. He will guide you into all truth. So Jesus told his men that the coming Holy Spirit would guide them into all truth. And I hope you understand that when he said all truth, he didn't mean that believers in the Lord Jesus Christ would become omniscient. <laughs> Have you figured that out by now? We, we don't know everything that God knows. Notice that the word truth is singular there. You know, by the way, I need to back up and read the passage. Let's do that, okay? Let's read the passage and then I'll continue to talk about it. After the Lord said that the Holy Spirit would come and reprove the whole world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, then in verse 12, he said, I have yet many things to say unto you. I just said that was verse 13, didn't I? I'm sorry, that's verse 12. I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but... Whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. 
Therefore said I that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. All right, so Jesus said all truth. And you notice that the word truth is what? Plural or singular? It's singular. singular. He did not say that the Spirit would guide us into all truths, plural, but all truth, singular. God's truth is one, singular, harmonious, non-contradictory, connected, indivisible, whole. When we hold a Bible in our hands, we have all the truth revealed by God to man. All of it that he wanted us to know is all there. We need nothing more. Don't need to add on to the word of God. Matter of fact, if you do, there's a curse for those who do add on, such as the Book of Mormon or the Koran or adding something else to the Word of God. We have everything we need in the 66 inspired books of the Bible. The Lord was saying that the teaching of the Spirit would be sufficient, that we will have all we need for creed and for conduct. When I say creed, that speaks of faith. We have all we need for faith and practice. We have all we need for creed and conduct. Now, the word guide, when you think of a guide... You think of sort of holding on to somebody's hand and they guide you, right? That's what the Holy Spirit does. Think about it. He not only comes alongside of us because alos parakletos means another who comes alongside. And then what else does he do? Indwells us permanently. But then he also takes our hand and he guides us step by step. The Holy Spirit would unfold the doctrines and the principles that now make up the New Testament epistles. So to properly interpret the scripture, what do we need? We need a totally a totally trustworthy guide, don't we? Totally trustworthy guide to take us step by step. Isn't that how we learn? Step by step. Isn't that how you teach your children? Step by step. He takes us step by step. He doesn't just, when you're a new Christian, dump everything on you. You, t- you know, it's precept upon precept, line upon. That's why I tell women who come to the Bible study, say, I don't know anything about the Bible. Well, I got news. When I was 32 years old, I didn't know anything about the Bible. I knew there was a man named Noah who built a big ship. That was about all I knew. I came to the Bible. But he takes us line upon line, just stay in here, hang in here, and he will build precept upon precept. Did we learn something new last week? Yes, we're being guided you know it's progressive revelation he takes us to you know at the point where we he knows we can learn so we need a totally trustworthy guide a divine infallible teacher the interpreter of the scripture is not found in the church the quote church the church is not the only one who can interpret scripture and there is a church that says they are the only ones who can interpret the scripture The interpreter is not found in some self-proclaimed prophet or some holy man. I remember once that I was having a conversation with a man who had his collar on backwards and called himself a priest. And he found out that I taught a Bible study and he got very irate, very mad about it. And he said, what gives you the right to teach the Bible? What gives you the right to interpret the Bible and to be a guide to others for the Bible? And I said, how about the Holy Spirit? He's my guide. And that kind of 
it took him back because, you know, to him, you had to be a priest of the church, and the church would interpret the Bible for you. An interpreter is not found in the voice of tradition or in some cunningly devised ideas from human reason. He, the guide we need, is found in the spirit of truth, the one who not only wrote the scriptures, but the one who quickens and illuminates and rightly interprets the word of truth. Now, if you and I were to put ourselves in the place of the disciples, it would likely be the case that they would have thought that Jesus, after some three years, had taught them everything that was necessary. Right? They would have thought, well, he's been with us three years. Just bring on the kingdom. We know, we know everything that we need to sit at your right hands and help you rule. Why would they need another teacher, another guide? And so the Lord gave them the reason for this in verse 12 when he said, almost by way of transition, he's transitioning now from one ministry of the Spirit to another ministry. He says, I have many things to say unto you, but you can't bear them now. Do you realize here what he was saying? He was saying that at the point when he went to the cross, because we know in a few hours from where we are, he's on his way to Gethsemane. In a few more hours, he's going to be hanging on a cross, right? So what he's saying here is that at the point he went to the cross, his own teaching was incomplete. That's what he's saying. Now, we know that there were some additional truths, things that he taught to his men during the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension. We know that because the book of Acts said that he spoke many things to them concerning the kingdom of heaven. But... That post-resurrection teaching, those 40 days of additional teaching to his men, was still before the coming teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit, right? Because after he ascended, the Holy Spirit still didn't come until 10 more days. Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection. So what the Lord Jesus intended for us to understand from John 16, 12, is that his teaching was even incomplete at the time when he ascended to his father. And this fact necessitated the Spirit's ministry of teaching and guiding the church into all truth after his coming, after the Spirit's coming. Now, that's surprising to many people. That is surprising to many people because their assumption is that Jesus left us with a complete philosophy of religion. They have this idea that Jesus had a system of teaching, much like, let's say, for an example, Mohammed. Okay, that Jesus had a philosophy of religion, a system of teaching, and that he gave the entirety of his teaching uh, during his earthly life. And if you want to know what Jesus taught, you look at the four Gospels. And there you have the teaching of Jesus. But... That is not at all what the Lord himself taught, right? That is not what he taught here. He taught that his instruction was not complete at the time of his ascension. You do understand, right? Everybody here, look at me. You do understand that we do not have the entirety of the truth that we need as believers in just the four Gospels. I know we've spent nine, ten years studying Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but we don't have the entirety of Jesus' teaching in the four Gospels. Do you understand that? Everybody understand that? Go like this. Okay. All right. You understand. <laughs> there was more to be taught. 
And it would be the Holy Spirit who would give that teaching. And what was the reason that Jesus could not give to his men all that teaching at that time before his ascension? Why? Right, they weren't ready. He gives the reason at the end of verse 12. He says, ye cannot bear it now. You couldn't, you couldn't bear it now. He's too wise. He was too wise to burden his disciples with truths that they couldn't yet bear. They were so much like children, weren't they? Didn't he call them little children? First time after Judas left, he called them little children. And he understood that they could only handle so much, especially in their distraught state of mind. He also knew that they were still very prejudiced by all of their years of former teaching and that their hearts were really set on an immediate messianic kingdom. So he wasn't going to press them any uh, further with truths because he knew, he knew that they weren't ready for those truths and he also knew that the Holy Spirit would unfold the rest of the truth to them in due season, as they were progressively ready for it. Besides, when the Holy Spirit came and indwelt the apostles, their spiritual facilities would be enhanced, wouldn't they? I mean, look at what Peter preached after the Spirit indwelt him. Their spiritual facilities would be enhanced, and they would be able to grasp the truths that they only vaguely understood when Christ spoke them. You know, a thing can be very, very valuable. Something can be very valuable. It can be as precious as gold or as, as precious as a diamond. But any one of us can only carry so much of its weight at any one time in our lives. The Lord was saying that really every something that every one of us really knows by experience. He was saying that there is much of divine truth that at any one point in our lives we simply couldn't bear the whole weight of it. I mean, as a new Christian, when I was 21 and a half years old, if somebody had dumped all this stuff on me, I could never have borne the weight of it. I would never have understood what they were talking about, right? Like the feast days of Israel and, and all, the, all about the book of Revelation. I could, it would have been too much weight. I couldn't have borne it. So isn't it wonderful that God knows how to apportion the truth, how to dole it out? To us according to our capacity at the time and that was surely the case for the disciples as we've seen throughout our study of the Gospels and even in the book of Acts as you read through the book of Acts after the Spirit did indwell them there were times when we read that the Apostles were really bewildered as the Spirit unveiled new truths to them they they were they were still struggling and they even had the Spirit within them um, for example, think of Peter's reaction when the Spirit of God unveiled to him or revealed to him that he was to open the door of faith to the Gentiles. Peter was like, whoa, he could hardly bear it. Or when the Jewish dis disciples learned about the um, abolition of the dietary laws, elimination of the diet, you mean we can eat Pigskins? You gotta be kidding. <laughs> we can eat anything? Horses' hooves? Mm, no. I mean, I still don't eat that stuff. <laughs> Let you southerners eat the pigskins, but they couldn't hardly handle that. And what about when they learned that circumcision was no longer a necessity? 
or when they learned about the typological nature of their whole sacrificial system. You mean the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin? I mean, they've been doing that for centuries. All these things were new revelations to them, and it bewildered them when they first heard about them. They couldn't bear those things now. If Jesus had told them all these things now before his ascension, what do you think would have happened? They might have turned and walked no more with him like those other disciples back in John 6, 66. Howbeit, the Lord says, <clears throat> he tells them about the wonderful ministry of the coming Holy Spirit. He says, Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. The spirit would guide the apostles to doctrinal truths that would be the foundation for the church. Now, has there been a fulfillment of these words of the Lord? Has there? Yes, indeed, there has been. The fulfillment of these words first took place when the Spirit made known certain things by revelation. Now, the word revelation is a biblical word, or, you know, in, in um, compliance with the Scripture when we use that word. It's a biblical word that refers to God disclosing or God unveiling to human beings things that they would never have discovered otherwise. When you hear me talk about Revelation, I'm not talking about the book of Revelation, although that also contains things that we would never have known before. The unveiling is the unveiling of Jesus Christ talking about the end times. But when I say Revelation, I'm speaking about supernatural activity. It's the unveiling of truth that human beings would be totally incapable of knowing without the Spirit of God revealing them to us. Jesus said that when the Spirit has come, he's going to guide men into all truth. How is he going to do that? Well, first of all, he is going to do that by revelation, by unveiling, revealing, disclosing to the apostles things that otherwise they never would have known. Now, let me give you some scriptures for this. First, um, if you want to turn over, you're going to do a lot of Bible hopping, okay? Will you look over at Ephesians chapter 3? Ephesians chapter 3, and look at verses 2 to 6. We learn here that the Apostle Paul was giving a, given a supernatural insight into the ministry, or the, yeah, the, the mystery of Jesus Christ. And his own, own words are found in Ephesians 3, look at verse 2, two. Ephesians 3, 2. If ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you word. That's a funny word, isn't it? You word. How that by what? By revelation, he, he, he is the spirit, made known unto me the mystery. As I wrote a, a four in few words. Whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known under the sons of men as it is now revealed. That comes from the word revelation. As it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by who? By the Spirit. And here's the mystery that was told to Paul and the other apostles, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Paul was writing, okay, you can go back to... Um, John, Paul was writing there that his insight or this insight about the Gentiles being in, the, in Christ, 
that it was not made known to the sons of men in previous generations as it was now revealed by the Spirit to the New Testament apostles and prophets. This is therefore part of the fulfillment of Christ's words or his prediction in John 16, 13. This is part of the fulfillment of that promise. The Holy Spirit imparted revelation to the apostles and the New Testament prophets after Christ's ascension. And then, if you want to go there or just listen to me, um, we have Peter's account in Second Peter. Second Peter of what he witnessed when he was up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, remember that? On the Mount of Transfiguration, Christ unveiled his glory, didn't he? And he let three of the apostles see it. Peter, James, and John. And I don't know of any serious Christian who would not have loved to have seen with their own two eyes what Peter, James, and John saw up there on that mount. Do you? Would you have liked to have seen that? Oh, absolutely. With our own two eyes, see the unveiled glory of Jesus Christ. And to hear the voice of God speak from heaven and say, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. However, do you know what Peter tells us about that? Peter's own words. He was one of those three eyewitnesses. Peter tells us in Second Peter, um, I don't know what verse it is because I didn't write it down. And I didn't go to Second Peter. <clears throat> where he says, we have a more sure word of prophecy. Anybody know where that is? 19? 119, thank you. Second Peter 119, Peter says, we have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed. And then he goes on. How... How could it be possible that the prophetic word, and there he's not speaking of prof, prophetic as far as future events is concerned. He's talking about the, anything that's a uh, foretold statement. So how could it be that the foretold statement, the Bible, could be more sure? He says we have a more sure word. How could that be more sure than an eyewitness experience of seeing Jesus transfigured and beholding his majesty. How could the Bible be more sure than that? Well, the answer is found in the incident itself. Do you remember what happened up there? We studied this years ago, but you, you know, when we read through that actual account, we found that Peter, James, and John didn't, they did not know how to interpret the event at all. They had just seen it with their own two eyes, six eyes, I should say, and yet they didn't know how to interpret it. And Peter, poor Peter, put his foot in his mouth and he said, hey, Lord, you know, this is great. This is wonderful. Let's just stay up here forever and build three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, did he interpret it that? Did he interpret it right at all? No, he interpreted it it so badly that God had to speak from heaven and say, "Wait a minute! God said this is my beloved Son. Hear ye Him." God was not very happy with Peter's interpretation. He was saying, "You don't dare put Moses and Elijah 
on the same level as my son, hear him and hear him alone. So what this indicates to us is that the first people to have such an experience, such a glorious experience as that, they didn't have enough. They had the experience, but that wasn't enough. What else did they need? They needed a clarifying, interpreting word from God. We can have a great experience and not know what to make of it any more than the disciples did. And Peter learned this lesson. And that is why he tells us, you have the prophetic word. And it is more sure, more sure as a foundation for your faith and for your practice than even if you had a vision of the glorified Jesus Christ this afternoon. That's what he's saying to us. And Peter goes on to say that the reason the scripture itself is so absolutely sure is because nothing in it, and this is uh, 2 Peter 1.20, 2 Peter 1.20, this is an important verse because not, he's saying nothing in the word of God, no prophecy, no revelation, no, no forth told statement is of any private interpretation. He says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. See, that's what Peter did up there on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? He had his own private little interpretation of what he should do. But here he says, I learned my lesson. No scripture is of any private interpretation. Well, what does that mean? It means that no part of the scripture is of any person's individual private disclosure. None of it, none of it has its source in someone's private opinion. And that is very, very critical to know. Why? Well, because if you pick up almost any recent publication that comes from the pens of religion teachers in almost any well-known institution in this country, or even if you listen to the words of many standing in our churches or in our Sunday school classes or serving as deacons or elders or leaders of our churches, you will hear a lot of talk about Paul's individual viewpoint. Or you will hear references to what Moses thought people should do. Or you will even hear that Moses wasn't Moses that wrote the Pentateuch, that it was Mr. J, Mr. E, Mr. P, and Mr. D, which is a bunch of baloney because Moses himself says he wrote it. But you'll hear what they thought that people should do. As if Paul or as if Moses had some very personal ideas and some even prejudiced opinions about things. I had a girl just a couple of weeks come to me and tell me this. In her church, they're saying, well, this is just Paul. We don't really need to, you know, it's a cultural thing and you know Paul. Da, 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 da. But none of Scripture came that way. None of Scripture came through anybody's opinions or ideas or cultural influences. Not one word, not one jot, not one tittle of it is anybody's individual ideas, thoughts, opinions, or biases. So how did it come? 
Peter goes on to tell us in the next verse. This is verse 21. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake, how? As they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now, obviously, when Peter wrote that statement, he was primarily referring to the Old Testament writings. Because when he wrote that statement, much of the New Testament was not yet written. And that's why the Spirit of God made sure that we also have other references given to us in the New Testament to cover not just the Old Testament, but the entire Bible. So what I want to do now is we're going to really start hopping in our Bibles. So get ready with your nimble fingers. Um, We're going to look at a series of about eight references. But I feel that especially in our day... And we are living in the last days, the days of Laodicea, with a cold, dead, apostate church. And I guarantee you, if you haven't heard these things already, you will hear them. I think it's very important to show you these these verses, okay? So you've got some ammunition when you hear about Paul's opinion or Moses. Acts 1.16, okay? Acts 1.16. While you're going there, I'll keep talking so we don't run out of time. But what we find here is something that took place just a short time after the Lord's ascension. A short time after. It's still Acts chapter 1. So we know the Lord has just ascended. And his men are together. This, this is between the 10 days between his ascension and the, and the Spirit's coming. His men, the disciples, the 11 disciples are together and they're waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit as he promised. They're studying the Old Testament scriptures. That was a good thing for them to be doing, right? The 11 apostles are studying the Old Testament scriptures and Peter found something in the Psalms to help direct them about their choice in picking someone to replace Judas Iscariot. That's what they're meeting about. We need to replace Judas. And so they're searching the scripture to see if they can get a word from God from the scripture, the Old Testament. Now look at how Peter refers to the scriptures that he has been studying. He says in uh, Acts 1.16, Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas. Now, the particular scripture Peter is referring to is found over in Psalm 41, verse 9. And Peter said what about the psalm? He said that it was the Holy Spirit speaking, but whose mouth was he using? David. Holy Spirit was speaking. This is really still about... I'm going to get into New Testament. I'm sorry. I confused you. This is about the inspiration of the Old Testament. Then we'll get into the inspiration of the New Testament. But here he's saying, he's calling it scripture that David wrote in the psalm. And he's saying it's scripture and it was spoken. Yes, David wrote it. And it was his mouth that first spoke that psalm and sang that psalm. But really, it was spoken by... He got the words from God, the Holy Spirit. Now move over to the book of Hebrews. We'll be in Hebrews for three of these references. So go to Hebrews and look at chapter three. All of this, what we find here in Hebrews is significant because the writer of the book of Hebrews wrote to Jewish believers 
Hebrews, right? They're Jewish believers, and they knew their Old Testaments really well. So what he says here is, is very significant. In Hebrews 3, 7, the author says, Wherefore, as the Holy Spirit saith. And then you know what he goes on to say? I won't read it to you, but then he goes on and quotes from the 95th Psalm. So who is speaking in Psalm 95? Who's speaking? The Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit spoke the words of Psalm 95. He spoke the words of Psalm 41. He spoke the words of Psalm 95. And I'm just going to give you those two because all the law requires is two witnesses. But the Holy Spirit wrote all the Psalms. I've got word for you. News for you. All the Psalms. All right. Now go over just a few chapters to Hebrews chapter 9 where the author is writing about the tabernacle. You know, the tabernacle that they were to build out in the wilderness. And its ministry, and in verse 7, Hebrews 9, 7, we are told that the high priest was permitted to go into the Holy of Holies how many times a year? Once, only once a year, he could go into the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle, and that was on the Day of Atonement, and he had to go alone, totally alone. He could not go in without blood, which he first offered for himself, and then he also offered for the errors of the people. You see that? Hebrews 9, 7. Well, what was that all about? The directions for all of that are given in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, by the Holy Spirit. And it was signifying something. Look at verse 8. The Holy Spirit gave those directions, and all of those directions were signifying something. Haven't we talked about this over and over again? How everything in the Old Testament is a a symbol or a, a type, a picture of something else. Of course, we know it's all a picture of Christ. And I'm not going to get into all that because that's not our subject. But what this is saying is that the Holy Spirit is the one who told Moses to write all these things and you know give all these directions for what the high priest was to do, etc., etc. Everything about the tabernacle, the Holy Spirit. Did you think it was Moses who was writing all this stuff down? that he figured out himself? No. It was his pen. His pen. But the words were the words of the Holy Spirit. Now move over one more chapter. Go over to Hebrews 10 and look at verse 14 where we are told, Hebrews 10, 14, that by one offering Christ hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. You know, once for all, he perfected those who are sanctified. And then we read in verse 15, Whereof the Holy Spirit also is witness to us. Where is he a witness to us? For after that he, the Spirit, had said before. What is the the Holy Spirit a witness to? And then he says, he spoke to us before. And then he goes on. I won't read that. But he goes on in verse 16 to quote from Jeremiah. What he says that the Spirit is a witness of that was written before is from Jeremiah 31, verse 33. So the author of the book of Hebrews is saying that the Holy Spirit who witnessed was the one who witnessed and spoke through the prophet Jeremiah. Now, I could do the same thing and show you that the Holy Spirit was also the one who spoke through Isaiah and Daniel, and Ezekiel, and Hosea, Hosea, and Amos, and all of them. But I'm just going to give you one example, okay? Here, Jeremiah, for time's sake. 
So what is it we have seen so far with that little exercise? We have seen that it was the Holy Spirit speaking in the Psalms, right? It was the Holy Spirit speaking in the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, and it was the Holy Spirit speaking in the Prophets. And Peter says that none of the writings of old came from anybody's personal opinions. By anyone's personal disclosure. Those men wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And we've just seen that other New Testament writers confirm that truth. So what we can say in summation is that all 39 books, the Pentateuch, the Psalms, and the Prophets, that's it. That's all 39 books of the Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament is the speech of God the Holy Spirit. And if it's the speech of God the Holy Spirit, it's the speech of God. Because everything he hears from the Father is what he says. And we also know that we have a triune God, so it's also the speech of Christ. So if you want to say God wrote the Old Testament, or Christ wrote the Old Testament, or the Holy Spirit wrote the Old Testament, it doesn't matter. God wrote the Old Testament, all 39 books. Now, what about the New Testament? Well, here is one big overall statement for you, and you all know this. It's found in 2 Timothy 3.16. What is it? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All Scripture is given the same way. It is breathed out by God. And that is what makes it profitable for Christian perfection. For all the things that we need in righteousness. For all of the things we need in our obligations. Doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. So, okay, how do we know then? We've got this general overall statement that says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. How do we know that the 27 books that make up our New Testament, how do we know that those are the books that God wanted to be in the New Testament as part of Scripture? And again, we need to know that because many people in both the secular world and also in the liberal world of Christendom, many people with a modern mindset toward the Bible, which is not a good thing, will question just such an issue. Well, how do you know that those are the books that should have been canonized into Scripture? Well, especially like Revelation. And, you know, so much of that is just Paul's opinion. I don't know about that being all Scripture divinely inspired. So we need some references about the New Testament to help us out. One such important reference is found back to Second Peter. Okay, go back to Second Peter, but this time, time look at verse um, 15 of chapter 3. Second Peter 3.15. Second Peter 3.15. Here, Peter writes about the apostle Paul. Peter writes about Paul. And he says... The long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, who gave Paul wisdom, God, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles. Notice that. Paul hath written according to the wisdom 
given unto him in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to be understood. You know what Peter's saying there? He says, yeah, I have to admit some of the things Paul writes are very difficult to understand. And we know that's true, right? It is true. They might be difficult to understand, and even Peter admits that. And then he goes on and he says, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest. You know what that word rest means? Distort or twist. The unlearned and and the unstable will take the words of Paul and do what with them? Twist them. Distort them. And he says, as they do also the other scriptures. You know what he's saying there? That Paul's, all of Paul's epistles are also scripture. When he says other scripture, that's saying that Paul's epistles are also scripture. And he says, uh, they that are unlearned and unstable twist as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Boy, that's an important verse in this day and age to know. This tells us that what Paul wrote in all of his epistles in Scripture is by way, it's, it is Scripture. It's by way of divine inspiration from God the Holy Spirit. Everything Paul wrote is Scripture. So you know what that does? That takes care of 13 of our books in the New Testament that they are, or maybe even 14, because some people suspect that Hebrews was written by Paul, by the hand of Luke. Have you ever heard that? And that could be. We just don't know who the author of Hebrews. But it takes care of at least 13 books in our New Testament. Well, 2 Timothy 5.17, if you want to go there, 2 Timothy 5.17, in this epistle, the Apostle Paul is speaking. He's writing to young Timothy, and he is speaking of elders, the elders, and his admonishment. 2 Timothy 5.17. I hope I got it right. <laughs> I don't? There is no 5. Oh, well, maybe it's 1 Timothy. Is there a 5 in 1 Timothy? 1 Timothy 6.20. I don't know. And this is about, it's either, it's got to be in Timothy and it's 17 and 18. Maybe it's chapter 3. I did this. I went away this weekend, and I'm sorry if I got the wrong. Anyway, here's what he's doing, and maybe somebody can find it. I'll explain. He's talking about elders who rule well. First Timothy. Okay, First Timothy. Sorry about that. i got to make that correction for tomorrow. First Timothy 517. All right, he's talking about elders who rule well, that they be counted worthy of double honor especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. And here's the reason, verse 18, because the scripture saith, here's what the scripture says, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn. You know where that's taken, where that scripture is taken? From Deuteronomy. And it's called scripture, okay? Deuteronomy, again referred to as scripture by a New Testament writer. And... As the scripture saith, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. Do you know where that comes from? Luke. Luke. So, both Deuteronomy, Old Testament, Moses actually, and Luke, New Testament, are referred to as the scripture. 
And these are just a few, just a few. I've also got others, uh, Jude, verses 17 and 18, and more. But these are just a few references to show that the writings of the Bible form a, a kind of a, like a weaving that the writers of the, of the scripture mutually depend on one another. That they refer to one another as penning scripture. And they affirm for one another's writings exactly what was affirmed for all of the Old Testament books. The Old Testament scriptures are the Holy Spirit speaking. And the Lord Jesus said... In John 16, 13, you can go back to John now. In John 16, 13, the Lord said, When he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. So, when was this fulfilled? Well, Paul says that there are things he is revealing to us by the Holy Spirit that we were not made known, that were not made known to the sons of men in the ages before. And the apostle writes, we, the writers of scripture, are moved to write these things by the Holy Spirit. The scriptures that we give you are God-breathed. Unlearned people will take them and they will twist them. They will distort them. But the things that we write to you are the truths, the very word of God. So the promise is filled then in the giving to you of the New Testament scriptures. When was John 16, 13 fulfilled? When we had our completed New Testament. Well, in the Lord's next statement, and this is at the end of verse uh, 13, he assures us that what the Holy Spirit will teach is not going to be in any way inferior to what he himself, Christ, would have taught. He says, when, this, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. And here is where someone might say something like this. Well, what do you mean here, Lord? I thought you were the source of all truth. You said that you are the way, the truth, and the life, right? So what do you mean that the spirit will guide us into all truth? So look at the next statement. He says, For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. Now the phrase, we're going to talk about this, but right now let me take one little phrase. The phrase where he says, He shall not speak of himself. That's talking about the Spirit will not speak of himself. That does not mean that the Holy Spirit never spoke about himself. Because if he didn't, we wouldn't know anything about him in the New Testament, right? He did speak about himself. Um, he makes, often makes mention of himself in the scripture. What the phrase means is that he does not speak apart or independently from the Father and the Son. He does not have a different message. He will not speak out of his own initiative. The Holy Spirit would follow the same divine principle of revelation that the Lord Jesus had followed. And what was that? Whatsoever he heard, that is what he spoke, right? And you notice the word show, and the King James show, S-H-E-W. You ever wondered about that funny little word? Show. How do you really pronounce it? Shoe? <laughs> Shoe, really, isn't it? You know what that word really means? It's like show and tell. You remember show and tell? It's what the Spirit saw and then he told. And so they combine show and tell and they get the word shoe. <laughs> he actually did. He saw it and then he told it. Or he heard it and he told it to us. 
That's the word shoe, show, shoe, however you want to say it. In John 8, 26, Jesus said, He that sent me is true. Remember that? Back in John 8. He that sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I have heard of him. And in John 15, 15, remember the vine and the branches? We just looked at it a little while ago. He essentially said the same thing. He said, all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. Both the teaching, so what we have is that both the teaching of Christ and the teaching of the Holy Spirit come from the same infallible source, God the Father. Now, you might wonder, why have we spent so much time belaboring all of this? I already knew that. I already believed that the Word of God is the Word of God. You didn't have to go into all this, Catherine. Well, it's because, as I said earlier, I guarantee you that if you have not already encountered this, you will or your children will if the Lord tarries. And you need to be preparing your children with apologetics to know how to defend the Scripture because they're going to hear this kind of stuff. Uh, you will surely encounter people who, are, who will say to you something like this. I have great respect for and entirely believe what Jesus taught. I just have some problems with, finish it, with Paul in some areas. Do you know who said that exact statement? That's a quote. Former President Jimmy Carter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You'll hear that from a lot of different places. And they will quickly then go on to state some of the things that Paul said, like how Paul felt about women and how we can understand his prejudices because, well, after all, he was never married. Well, we don't know that Paul was never married. There's no proof of that. We don't know that, but they say that he just didn't understand women. He was never married, and so he's just uh, prejudiced against women. Or else he wouldn't have said some of the things that he said. You know, statements like that appear abundantly, abundantly in highbrow theological journals written by credentialed men with PhDs and other degrees that are respected and held up for admiration. And things like that are said even in many evangelical seminaries in this country today. Does that shock you? Or are you saying, yeah, I know, I know, I know. You're going to hear people object to Paul's teaching on the law, on homosexuality, on women and their role in the church, on women teaching men. You're going to hear people talk about matters concerning Christian liberties that Paul writes about and separation, you know, come ye apart. Oh, that's just Paul, you know. We can't be too different. We'll be freaky. You also hear people stating their disagreement with some of the things John wrote in the book of Revelation. Won't you? Oh, yeah. Or what Jude wrote about apostasy or the fate of the unbeliever. In their minds, you see, and this is rampant, in their minds they think that there is a dichotomy between Jesus' teaching in the Gospels and the teaching found in the epistles. And this is why, and don't get me wrong when I make this statement, but this is why there could be, could be, a slight danger in Bibles that put Jesus' words in red. Now, I myself have up here 
a uh, red, red letter Bible, and probably a lot of you do too. There's nothing at all wrong with a red letter Bible as long as you understand that the words of Jesus are no more important than the black words. They're all the word of God. Everything is the word of God. It is all the speech of God. Do not quarrel with Paul. Don't quarrel with Paul. Don't argue with John. Don't disagree with Moses. <laughs> and Paul, oh, this is a very important verse. Write this one down. 1 Corinthians 14:37. 1 Corinthians 14:37. Here Paul was dealing with my ancestors. <laughs> the Greeks in the church of Corinth. My my grandparents both came from Corinth. And he was reading to my carnal ancestors in the church of Corinth about the matter of the Holy Spirit and his gifts. And Paul said, this is 1 Corinthians 14:37. If any man, are you all there? I want to make sure you're looking at this. He says, if any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are what? The commandments of the Lord. Hmm. Now what about these people who criticize Paul? <laughs> Well, back to John 16. In addition to the Holy Spirit giving guidance into general truth, there is the more specific prediction given by the Lord at the very end of verse 13, where he says, and he will shew you things to come. <laughs> he will show you things to come. The Spirit's ministry would be prophetic, not only foretold statements like doctrines and principles, but also prophetic as far as future events. It will be the Spirit's ministry will tell about future things to happen. Now, isn't it interesting to realize that out of all the whole realm of general truth, the Lord was saying that the Spirit would lead the apostles into. Out of all the things he could have said, and he will also lead you into this. He could have said this or that or so many different things. He's going to tell you about the dietary laws. He's going to tell you about... Uh, the role of men and women in the church and that sort of thing. Out of all the pool of things that he could have talked about here, he feels, Jesus feels the necessity of adding clarification by referring specifically to just one subject. He says when the Spirit comes, he's going to minister to you about things to come. In other words, he's going to have a prophetic ministry about the future. Now, did you know that over 20% of the New Testament is prophetic about the future? That's one out of every five verses. One out of every five verses in the New Testament has to do about the future. You know, there's only two books in the New Testament that have no prophecy in them at all. Anybody know what they are? And you can't look at your notes because it's not in there. Anybody want to take a guess? Two books. That have nothing prophetic in them. Philemon and 3rd John. Philemon and 3rd John. Some books, some of the books in the New Testament, such as 2nd Thessalonians, 
Second Peter, where we just were, uh, Jude, are almost half prophetic. And then there is the book of Revelation, which is overwhelmingly prophetic. And even in the book of Romans. Now, when you hear me talk about Romans, what do you think of? Deep doctrine, right? It's such a doctrinal book. But did you know that there are some 90 to 100 verses in the book of Romans that deal with some 30 yet future themes, prophetic themes, such as coming judgment, the glory of Christ's return, Israel's future national salvation, etc., etc.? So even much of Romans is prophetic. So it is not proper at all for a Christian to say, well, I am not really interested in prophecy. Have you heard that? I hear it so much, and every time I just cringe with, within me because I say, okay, you know what that means? You're not interested in at least one-third of the whole Bible. Okay, I guess that means you're not interested in 2 Thessalonians and 2 Peter and Jude and Revelation and even Romans, much less the book of Revelation. And how much of the Old Testament is prophetic? A lot. That's, that's not a very intelligent statement for a Christian to make. Uh, and don't ever say it. Now, I, I know. Whoops. <laughs> I know that there are uh, some things about the future that have been wrongly taught and some things that have been very wildly interpreted. You hear some really strange things. But isn't that just part of the wiles of the devil? Isn't that part of his scheme? One of Satan's most manipulative ways to rob people of some of the most precious parts of the scripture is to exaggerate or twist or distort so distastefully those things that any balanced person or balanced Christian says, oh, I don't want to have anything to do with that. That's just too far out. And that's because it's been wrongly interpreted. This is a satanic means of robbing you of much of what God has given us. The Holy Spirit breathed out a whole lot that is prophetic, even yet prophetic from where we stand today in history. John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day when he was told to take up his pen and write. And what he wrote was for the churches. It was for us. Oh, don't just put away Revelation say it's not for me. It's not. It was for the churches. And you know Revelation is the only book in the Bible that promises, uh, promises a special blessing for those who read and heed it. So why, it is, why is it the least book studied? It just doesn't make sense. Well, it's satanic. Well, as we come to the end of John 16, 13, where Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would show the disciples things to come... We can now see that the Lord put his divine stamp of approval on the entire New Testament in his last sermon. This is his last sermon before his crucifixion, right? So you know what he's doing here? I don't know if you saw this, but in just these few verses, he is giving his divine stamp of approval on the entire New Testament. Let's review that, okay? Well, actually... We have to go back to John 14. You don't have to do that. Just listen to me. He spoke first about the divine inspiration of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when he said to his men in John 14, 26, but the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have taught you or said unto you. See, that's the four gospels. 
The four Gospels record everything that the apostles remember about what the Lord spoke to them. They remember everything about his ministry, what he did and what he said. How did they remember that? By way of the Holy Spirit. He recalled those things to their remembrance. So that tells us he puts his divine stamp of approval on the four Gospels. And then he also put his stamp of approval on the book of Acts when he said in John 15, verses 26 and 27, But when the Comforter is come, who I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me, and ye also, you disciples, you apostles, shall also bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. And that is what we read about in the book of Acts. It's the record of the apostles bearing witness of Christ. So we have his stamp of approval on the four Gospels. We have his stamp of approval on the book of Acts. And then in John 16, verses 12 and 13, that we just finished looking at, the Lord also went on to state that the New Testament epistles would be divinely inspired by the Spirit of truth. That's what he said when he said, I have yet many things to say unto you. But ye can't bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, he shall that shall he speak. The truth that the disciples could not bear on the very night of the Lord's arrest, that truth was the New Testament completed truth later revealed to them by none other than God the Holy Spirit. So we have his stamp of approval on the four Gospels, on the book of Acts, on all the New Testament epistles, and what is left? Revelation. And that's what he says in 1613b, when Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would show the disciples what? Things to come. Revelation, the book of Revelation, speaks of what? It reveals church history, chapters 2 and 3. You get a preview of all church history in those seven letters to those seven churches. And if you have never studied that, wow, you have your eyes open. And get, get the tapes for the summer, a summer study. Revelation also presents the end times sequence of events in chapters 4 to 22. So we have the stamp of approval on the entire New Testament in his last sermon to his men, don't we? So Jesus, the living truth, voiced his approval of the written word of God, the written truth, which he stated would be divinely inspired through the apostles, the witnesses of truth, by the spirit of God, who is the spirit of truth. So the spirit's teaching through the apostles was not any different than the spirit's teaching through the Lord Jesus. Do you understand that? Red letter Bibles or not? It's all the word of God. And please, please don't listen to anyone who would teach you or try to convince you that the Christianity of Paul is in any way different from the Christianity of Jesus Christ. It's a sad thing when Bible teachers and preachers declare that the Apostle Paul ruined Christianity by making it so complicated so theological, so biased, or when they speak of his cultural hang-ups. 
What the Lord Jesus did, said about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in his farewell discourse, completely refutes that kind of false, heretical teaching. The same Spirit of Truth who communicated the truths found in the four Gospels also communicated the truths found in Acts and in the New Testament epistles and also in the book of Revelation. So today we have covered the entire Bible, all 66 books are the word of God. And you can bank your life and your eternal destiny on that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder from your word that you have done a miraculous thing in giving to us the kind of knowledge that we take far too often for granted. Lord, these things, these priceless truths are all given by your spirit and may we therefore genuinely treasure up these things treasure them in our hearts and give them rich dwelling in our hearts and minds that that will renew us renew our minds transform our lives we ask father that your son will be glorified because we have come to understand and respect and obey and share the truth We love you. I ask that you would go with every woman, put a divine hedge of protection around her and her family, and keep us all from the evil one in these last days. We pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.